0: This podcast is presented by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights
1: if you look at what they put in the Build Back Better Act, if you compare it to what was in the Thrive Act, you know, the $10 trillion package, it's very clear the proposals we put on the table, uh, our fingerprints are on that bill. And ultimately, things were cut and trimmed and not without a political consequence. But the the proposal that Biden put initially put forward was very impressive. And I think it's a result of the movement pressure that we had put on him.
0: Hello, and welcome to The Hegemonicon, a podcast from Convergence Magazine. This is a show about social movements and politics, strategy and ideology, the immediate present, and the rapidly onrushing future. I'm your host, William Lawrence. I spent my 20s as a member of grassroots social movements, most prominently as a co-founder and national leader of Sunrise Movement, the youth organization that put the Green New Deal on the political map. I talk with activists and researchers on the left, exploring the guiding theme of power, what it is, how it's exercised, and how it's distributed. I am recording this in the fall of 2023, midway through the second Congress of Biden's presidency, Uh, a split Congress whose agenda is dominated by right-wingers in the House. And it already feels like a long, long time ago, but it was really only a year ago that Democrats still held Congress and in August of 2022 passed the Inflation Reduction Act, the signature legislative achievement of the Biden presidency. The Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, was a direct outcome of the movement for a Green New Deal that I helped lead with Sunrise from 2017 to 2021. One journalist called the IRA a pale facsimile of the Green New Deal, and that seems about right to me. The IRA and its outcomes have been a stunning but bittersweet victory for us on the climate left, if we're ready to call it a victory at all. The climate movement lived through more political ups and downs in this period. To sum up in one episode, and I've been a back and forth again about how to actually get into this whole topic. So we're just going to start today with an overview of how the IRA developed with an emphasis on the congressional process in 2021 and 2022. Today, I am joined by Tim Sahay and Adrian Salazar, each of whom had a close view of the political maneuvering that led from the Green New Deal to the Inflation Reduction Act. Welcome, Tim and Adrian. I really appreciate the work you're both doing and the effort you've made to be here. Um, let's just start by having each of you introduce yourselves, beginning with Tim.
2: Hey, well, I'm Tim Sahai, um, and I'm the co-editor of this online magazine that I started called The Poly Crisis, which works on economics and politics of climate.
1: And I'm Adrian Salazar. I'm Policy Director at Grassroots Global Justice Alliance which is also a member of the Green New Deal Network and many other
0: coalitions and formations. And this episode is about the story behind Biden- Bidenomics, how the major legislative accomplishments of Biden's first two years actually went down. Both Tim and Adrian had a view of those uh, negotiations from their respective posts. So uh, let's just do uh, have Tim comment on how it feels to see the product of so many years of really complex and arduous negotiations being touted.
2: Yeah, I mean, it 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 it, it is it is uh, sort of fun to see the president take credit for something that was such a sort of a narrow victory with, with with Joe Manchin. But you know, you could say it's it's the Green New Dealers had a had a hand in 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 creating all of these uh, legislative bills and like. The fate of many things that originate from the left—it starts out as a fringe idea. It's pushed by a bunch of committed activists. It's taken up by politicians, and then we have the president taking the credit for it um, to to win a bigger mandate um, after the twenty twenty four elections. So I I don't see I don't see that as a, a negative. I think you do need pol- political leadership to take credit for the dollars that they're driving into so many communities across the country.
0: We said from the beginning with the fight for a Green New Deal that it would be not one bill, but have to be dozens of bills over a governing agenda lasting decades. And so we would hope that uh, one bill could lead to many bills and, importantly, bills that are even more in the direction of our vision of uh, justice and a truly sustainable economy. This episode is really talking about uh, the story behind how we got here. Um, and over the first two years of the Biden administration, the most significant policy battle was over the Build Back Better Act, which was the centerpiece of Biden's domestic agenda, which had been negotiated to appease progressives and kind of unify Democrats after the Biden beat Sanders in the 2020 primary. And from the beginning of Biden's presidency, the goal of the left in Congress was to passed this agenda in full, while the goal of mansion and cinema was essentially to kill it. Uh, and through 18 months of really agonizing and uncertain political maneuvering, Build Back Better died, only for part of it to be reborn and then passed into law in August of 2022 as the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. Almost all of the funds that had originally been in Build Back Better for care, health care, education, and housing had been stripped out. And what remained were extensive subsidies to support clean energy, along with some provisions mandated by Manchin in support of fossil fuel development. And then since then, uh, the IRA has driven uh, promise investments at an unprecedented scale to certain green sectors, as was promised. But it's also become the cause of much geopolitical conflict as countries around the world jockey for their share of the green economy of the future with some concerning uh, consequences. So Adrian and Tim, I'm just really excited to have you both here and talk about uh, all of this. So let's start with the Green New Deal. Bernie Sanders' 2020 platform included a $16 trillion Green New Deal proposal. Elizabeth Warren's was around $10 trillion. Uh, Each of these platforms ended up shaping Biden's Build Back Better agenda, which came in at a relatively modest uh, but still unprecedented $4.5 trillion. So could you tell me how this happened, including uh, some keynotes from the primary, and the so-called Bernie-Biden task forces in summer of 2020?
1: Yeah, you know, I think, well, uh, we arrived at this moment as a result of movements, as Tim outlined earlier, that this bill, this legislation, and the scale of funding that is coming to address the climate crisis and many uh, other needs, these are things that folks have been demanding for many, many years, preceding even the Build Back Better Act. You have uh, grassroots environmental justice movements, climate movements, young people who have been calling for a scale of action from the government that meets the crisis that we're facing. And we, you know, today are seeing the, the climate crisis bringing every part of the globe to extraordinary levels of temperature rise of heat this summer you see extraordinary uh, wildfires storms floods heat waves you know all of this has been accelerating in the recent years and and this fight um has been ongoing uh, and communities have been impacted on the ground by the the impacts of climate crisis Already for I would say well over a decade and and so we have been seeing actually um, the federal government slow walk the the action it 's taking on climate crisis, but it was really a pivotal moment in 2018, 2019, when the Green New Deal emerged as a political vision, as a sort of orienting set of principles for how we address the climate crisis in a way that also addresses economic inequity, racial injustice, care, and the needs of communities across the multiple crises that they're facing and this again is it was it's not a new set of principles that from the civil rights movement to the environmental justice movement people have been talking about the need for intersectional solutions for decades but what it became was actually orienting for the climate movement to be aligned on a, a tri of climate jobs and justice and i think that became what was the beginning of a major set of political shifts that created the opening for what was build back better and then Ultimately, the Inflation Reduction
0: Act. So, along the way, uh, Adrian, you and I were involved in efforts to um, translate the sort of demands and aspirations of some of these groups you mentioned environmental justice groups, which you've done a lot of work with, uh, labor unions, youth organizations, and uh, climate hawks, uh, trying to translate that into policy that could uh, actually pass Congress. Because whereas the Green New Deal resolution at the end of 2018 was sort of aspirational and broad strokes, then there was the matter of actually legislating on that vision. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that process was. And um, in particular, the Thrive Agenda, which was an attempt to stake Congress to uh, certain bold principles on climate jobs and justice uh, early on in the Biden administration.
1: Yes. So when we faced this moment coming into 2020, an election year, and the emergence of the Green New Deal as a vision that was grounding on these sets of principles, we knew that we needed a vehicle with which to push a political agenda that presidential candidates would take on. And so My organization, as part of the Green New Deal Network, which is a national coalition of labor, environmental groups, frontline environmental justice groups, political organizations, decided to put forward a vision of uh, the scale of the transition of our economy that we need. And this happened to also be In the period when the pandemic was just emerging, the COVID-19 pandemic. So we talked about the kind of just recovery and investment in infrastructure that would address both the climate crisis and create jobs to uplift the economy from the collapse it was facing imminently. And so we put together the Thrive Agenda in collaboration with organizations like Sunrise Movement, Working Families Party, the Climate Justice Alliance, People's Action, and many other members of the Green New Deal network. And the Thrive Agenda, um, which we eventually worked with legislators to introduce a bill called the Thrive Act, set forth a multi-trillion dollar vision for this just recovery that invested that funding in sectors all over across the board, from uh, energy to buildings to agriculture to conservation, you name it. And that was because, one, we saw that these solutions had to be intersectional in the period that we're facing multiple crises and people are unable to access health care and unable to put food on the table and facing these climate impacts uh, every year, that we knew that investing in the economy wholesale across sectors would address all of these issues and that the climate crisis was a critical opening with which to push through that kind of intersectional policy. And so the Thrive Act, we thought, would put forward a, a counterpoint to what has been a very incremental debate around climate policy that was tweaking at the edges of markets, like address trying to put in place carbon markets mm-hmm. and so on and so forth, which many frontline impacted communities see as false solutions. And putting forth actually large scale economic planning that we would need to actually advance a just transition and to have a progressive, um, progressive offering. And that was what the Thrive Act was, that $10 trillion package.
0: Thanks, Adrian. Which elements of the original vision of the Green New Deal and some of the specifics from that Thrive Act um, then made it into Biden's Build Back Better platform that he introduced and then the Build Back Better bill that was later introduced early in his presidency? And which elements of the Green New Deal and Thrive Act were kind of left on the cutting room floor?
2: But I I just like want to step back from the climate point and just go back to the Green New Deal as a solution to a kind of a problem that the Democratic Party had identified, which was stagnation, low growth, a climate crisis, and uh, racial injustice. And, you know, this kind of It becomes the organizing way in which the Biden administration thinks of what it has to do when it gets into power. So the very first speech that Biden gives in his inaugural speech is is all about framing this as my administration and my Congress, Democratic Congress, is going to try and solve four problems at the same time. This problem of racial injustice, this problem of total jobs collapse, like an economic collapse during the pandemic with, you know, tens of millions of people unemployed, and racial injustice, this was the sum of the George Floyd protests and, you know, a whole new uh, uh, sort of push to to reverse, you know, the terrible racial injustice and policing in this country. And so he comes in really thinking that every bill, his entire legislative agenda is going to be trying to solve all of these problems at the same time. And that's why the Thrive Act and the Green New Deal, you know, seemed like the right large-scale solution to a problem because we just had a Republican president, Trump, during um, uh, COVID in 2020, pass gigantic bills, right? So it kind we of had,
0: broke the seal on the big spending.
2: Uh, just broke it. So you had this sudden sense of no, actually, it's the government that is putting money into people's pockets and allowing them to stay home and stay away from the virus. Um, uh, it's the Trump Congress that is, you know, giving uh, the Trump bucks and 400. Uh, a week for everyone who is unemployed um, and, and checks. So the Democratic Party really felt that it had a moment that when it gets into power, especially after they actually won that 50th Senate seat in Georgia, that they could do something at least as big as what the, what the Republicans did. But they had a clear set of problems that they wanted yeah. to address
0: let me ask the next question then this way. What does the choices about what actually made it into Build Back Better, what does that reveal about the move that Biden and his team were trying to make at that time and some of the moves they weren't trying to make?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think we really have to think of that $4.5 trillion Build Back Better package with the American Jobs Plan and the Families Plan as a synthesis of Bernie, Bernie's, like, giant Green New Deal bill, the Warren bill, and the Biden bill, they really bring together that task force to really synthesize that. And for a moment, it seems that they are adopting the entire, we're going to fix the welfare state, we're actually going to do massive amounts of environmental justice. This cannot be fiddling around the edges, as, as Adrian said, of just like a few tax credits here and there. It has to be very, very ambitious. So it is, it is uh, you know, it has childcare, it has housing, it has environmental justice, it has paid family leave, this really crazy social welfare state, which is what, um, you know, the Green New Dealers have been pointing out right from the start, that actually, if you want climate action, you really need to fix the welfare system, because we are going to have this crazy amount of unemployment in some sectors, growth in some regions decline in some fossil fuel regions and you need a large safety net so that people feel comfortable in leaving a job and moving to another place um, and, and finding yeah. a better job for them. So that vision in the American Families Plan of social, social provisions yeah. uh, was hugely important and the Democratic Party actually adopted it, um, which was a sign that you know uh, uh, progressives were, if not in charge, at least ascendant in that progressive mod coalition that uh, Biden had built up.
0: And the moderates were forced to admit that the progressives had some of the right ideas for the right time. and. That's very, I am mean, I I'm appreciate hearing you say that, you know, they, they took it up and they were true believers in this, in a sense, at the scale that they offered it,
2: not at the scale necessarily that Bernie had yeah. or Warren had offered it. Yeah, I mean, even if you think about Warren, right, the reason I brought up Warren is because she had a super ambitious tax the rich, close all the corporate loopholes, reverse the Trump era tax cuts, which Democrats are mm-hmm. really mad about in 28, you know, that's the one big legislative accomplishment of the GOP was just like massive two and a half, three trillion dollar tax cuts. So the Democrats were like, no, we need to reverse this and plug the holes. Otherwise we have no way to do social spending. Um, and so it's the, it's the Biden people that come up with not just four and a half trillion dollars of spending, but four and a half trillion dollars of taxes. Um, and so they're willing to go after Wall Street, Silicon Valley, Fortune 500 companies, millionaires, dollar millionaires, um, and they are willing to tax them. To pay for the American jobs and family family spend.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Adrian, would you add anything to that on this transitional period from the uh, uh, end of the primary to the beginning of the Biden administration?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Tim is absolutely right that it's. It appeared in that moment that this administration was taking seriously the pressure that we were putting on it on as movements, you know, from the sit-ins that Sunrise held in Nancy Pelosi's office to folks coming out into the streets, demanding investments in care um, and, and national actions addressing climate crisis, youth showing up in the millions, um, demanding climate action, and that there was a mandate. You know, it had been uh, over a decade since the last opportunity to pass the a big climate legislation, which was the Waxman-Markey bill, it ultimately failed, and and I think the Democratic Party was clear. This was this is the party of the um, folks who take climate crisis seriously, and that in this new administration, uh, that they would put forward a proposal that would address that, and so. If you look at what they put in the Build Back Better Act, if you compare it to what was in the Thrive Act, you know, the $10 trillion package, that it's very clear the proposals we put on the table, uh, our fingerprints are on that bill. And ultimately things were cut and trimmed and not without a political consequence, but the the proposal that Biden put initially put forward was very impressive in the scale of energy investments, in investments in the care sector, in addressing environmental justice. Um, and all of the kinds of programs that Tim was outlining. And I think it's a result of the movement pressure that we had put on him and that, in effect, at that time, he his administration felt that it was our movements that helped get him into office.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was a really impressive and hopeful moment because we had to go so far to be able to move a a democratic president to that place. And I had the same impression at the time, that his team is very serious about this, they're thinking about this seriously, Um, like lots of really truly movement aligned progressive people are even in the room or their ideas are being taken up. And this is where the legislative politics in Congress start to come in and now the right starts to have its say. So Build Back Better was introduced to Congress in March of 2021 and asked them basically to pass it immediately, American Jobs Plan and Family Plan. And the task immediately was to try to get the final two senators, because it was pretty clear that there were 48 senators in, in his corner and Manchin and Cinema were going to be the barrier. And so this is when we get into the stage of the so-called two-track strategy, because uh, Manchin said, let me pass the bipartisan bill, let me slice off some of this American jobs plan and pass it as a bipartisan infrastructure bill. And then we can do the other stuff later. And the progressives, Congressional Progressive Caucus, rightly said, that's crazy. Why would we give up all of our leverage? Because you don't want to pass the rest of this stuff. And so they insisted that they would sink Manchin's bipartisan infrastructure bill if it were to move. And for a while... This seemed to be like they were holding, and Biden and Pelosi explicitly said, we endorse the two, we endorse um, the CPC's effort to have both of the bills pass at the same time, rather than letting Manchin's bill go first. But then there was a reversal uh, in, I believe, October of 2021, and all of a sudden, Biden and Pelosi decided that their priority was to pass the Mansion bill. And they started to whip against the CPC was what it looked like from my perspective from the outside and people were saying at the time. I wonder if you could comment on the dynamics in this period and particularly like who are the um, interests behind the scenes who are having this big brawl uh, between the conservative senators and then the progressive members of the House.
1: Yeah, so from the beginning, when we heard about the infrastructure bipartisan effort, we knew that this was going to be a uh, effort that would try to undercut the the progressive investments that we are trying to advance, and that having Republicans at the table would lock in some pretty bad stuff into this package that uh, Manchin was trying to lead in, in negotiating. And so we worked with our allies in the Congressional Progressive Caucus trying to persuade them to hold the line. That was what we told them. And that was our messaging. Hold the line against this bipartisan bill and demand that we move from actually our position was pass the full package first before moving mm-hmm. a bipartisan package. And then, uh, you know, politics happens and, and where they landed was let's uh demand a two-track process where they both move at the same time. But, you know, from, from our vantage point, the moment we gave any leverage to the Republicans was the moment the package would start to get weaker. And that's exactly what happened. That's what we saw. And so we tried to work very hard lobbying members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and other members of Congress. To try to oppose this package. And ultimately, only the members of the squad ended up voting no against the uh, bipartisan deal. And that's because we said we will back you. We will, we as movements will back you if you vote no on this. And it's important to, to draw the line in the sand and say how we oppose the investments in this package that increase, you know, fossil fuels, that increase funding for false solutions like carbon capture and storage. And many other things, Tim. What did you think
2: happened? I I think what what became interesting was just like you know the road to two hundred and eighteen votes in the House and the road to getting all fifty senators on board, and these and it was clear that the Biden White House was on the side of the progressives, like like well laid out. They were willing to back our efforts to pass a big package because they felt the same thing that they would lose they would lose, uh, you know, all of the um, the jobs plan and the family plan and the climate stuff if it became bipartisan. Um, and I think, like, the Biden people would say something strange if you ask them. They would say, we want something bipartisan because after the riots in June, in, in January 6th, you know, we want to show that we can work with our groups across the aisle. And it seemed completely crazy. But you know, that that was that was what and I always felt like that was just some a way of them to just sort of like make themselves like like look nice. But they see he, he's, he's, he's always serious about this democracy versus autocracy. And I need to show the rest of the world that the United States is still a functioning democracy. And it just seemed crazy because you aren't going to get half the things that you said uh, are a bigger threat to your democracy, which is, um, you know, this enormous unemployment and and the fires of racism, and and how could you possibly abandon all of those things, in in, in a decision uh, to to work across the aisle? So I, I thought it was it was. It was definitely interesting. And, and the Biden uh, cabinet and Biden himself, they never really went on a road show across the country. You know, like if they're doing this now, it's because they want to win the, the elections. They also wanted to win the midterms, terms. Right. So um, they
0: were very passive. It they seemed were, very like they passive, were content yeah. to let drive Manchin drive the timeline and the news cycle.
2: Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, I think like most progressives, just like Bernie was on the road. He was trying to sell it. He was, he was trying to talk about why this is, a, you know, once in a generation chance to actually expand the American safety net and welfare system and yeah. expand, uh, um, uh, you know, new pre-K, child care, free community, college, like all the stuff that he had been fighting for. So it was a big moment where, in, you know, Biden could have uh, tried to involve movements and try and use that public pressure on Manchin. Um, Mm -hmm. but he did not have the appetite for it. No.
0: Adrian, you mentioned that it was only the squad that ended up taking the tough vote against the bipartisan infrastructure bill once uh, the White House and congressional leadership had decided to pass it. Um, What do you think that reveals or what lessons does that give us about the differences between the squad and the rest of the members of the CPC who had previously been trying to hold out and I'm particularly interested in this because I think, you know, we need more members who are going to be willing to take the tough votes in the future. And if we had had maybe 15 or 20 rather than only six, um, there could have been a different outcome. But what, what lessons do you draw from that?
1: Upfront, I'll say what it shows me is that the left does not have the power to block votes in Congress. And um, when I say the left, I don't mean the squad. Right. They they represent um a certain moment in which we're actually be able to build uh, electoral power and candidates who reflect va- more left values, uh, but our movements have don't have the power to actually or have not been able to organize to solidify that block to grow that block to an extent. You know, like four or five members of Congress is not enough to stop anything in in, in the current political conditions. And uh, I will also say that. In in that time, uh, uh, Rep. Jayapal was in the in the process of building the muscle of the progressive caucus. You know, she just entered the the, the solo chairship and was trying to really solidify um, wielding it as a block. And we were working with progressive caucus members. We were lobbying them in a very, I think, unique co-governance sort of moment. When you know there is now a trifecta uh, in uh, both houses of of, the, uh, of Congress and uh, with the White House, and so we didn't we didn't know, and Jayapal didn't know how much she would be able to hold together this caucus. I think we were all testing, and we were trying to reflect: do we have the power to actually come down on votes, and and on important things that matter to us, like. The scale of this package, the, the kinds of investments in these programs that Tim outlined that our communities need? And can we persuade individual members to, to take that risk? And, and we all learned, right? I think in that moment, we mm-hmm. flexed a muscle and we didn't, we, we sort of, our, our eyes went farther than our hands could reach. And, and I think that Jayapal also found that that she wasn't able to hold the caucus together for a no vote. And so and it, it, it landed where it landed. And I think it's important that the members of the squad who did voted no to, to reflect an alignment and a solidarity with movements who are saying this is a bad package. This is a bad deal. History will prove us right. And that is the case. They made the bet that the, this two-track process would allow us to pass the full-scale package that Biden and the rest of the progressive members of the Democrats wanted. And we didn't get that. We actually handed all the leverage to to Manchin in that moment, and everything that followed uh, was a consequence of that.
0: Tim, anything to add?
2: Yeah, I, I, I think just like going back to that calculus of how do you get, how do you get 50 votes, I think so th- we had the first phase of the progressives being ascendant. Then the second phase, when the centrists and the mod- moderate Democrats are ascendant and more powerful. And, you know, the Build Back Better package just slams into these two veto votes from Manchin and Cinema that really cleverly like worked almost as a two-step clamp. Right. So Manchin is clamping down on social spending. Oh, my God, if you give money to like the people who are unemployed and the child tax credit, like they're just going to get drunk and paid all on drugs. Right. Like he's got this extreme social conservative Democrat, but Manchin is willing to tax the rich. He's willing to tax corporations. And then on the other side you have cinema, who's, you know, unwilling to tax the rich, unwilling to tax the corporations, is willing to sort of like basically... Uh, kill all of the tax provisions so between the two of them one is cutting out the spending mm-hmm. um what you can spend on on social welfare and the and obviously on green stuff cuz mansion is not particularly happy with green stuff and then cinema is clamping down on where you're going to get the money from so between the two of them they're just crushing the bill like a boa constrictor uh you know like a clamp like i started out with and and that 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 just like destroys um the the coalition that jpal and biden were trying to build out to get the votes because if you have big important things like public housing and housing being cut out of the bill child care being cut out of the bill ch- child tax credits being cut out of the bill you also lose people who have the you know who have the political sort of appetite to get those things done that's their sort of Big top yeah. pet uh, topic, and now it's gone.
0: Yeah, um, we mentioned earlier how, like the the fingerprints of the movement left and uh, um, was all over the the Build Back Better package, um, and then a lot of that got squeezed out uh, by that clamp. Even though the fingerprints were all over the package, it wasn't as if there was a, a really. Uh, broad and deep force in the streets that was fighting for some of the contentious provisions in this package at this time. I mean, this was 2021. It was the second year of COVID. It was like a pretty dark time, I think for a lot of people. So that's in my experience, a big part of it, but I don't think it's the whole story. Uh, so I guess I would ask uh, each of you, um, starting with Tim, um, do you have a theory about why it was kind of tough to get the grassroots involved in this push to get Bill Back better over the line in Congress?
2: I mean, right from the start, there were a lot of people calling their congressmen and senators. Like this was, this was a big, at least on, on calls and emails. Um, but I think you're right, not much actual like public pressure um, on the streets. There's not, you know, huge for instance the George Floyd protests had you know tens of millions of people out on the streets yeah. we didn't have tens of millions uh, at all during the entire during the entire Biden first two years so there's definitely been an inability um, of both centrists more, more, uh, sorry progressive centrists and Biden himself to actually get people out onto the streets um, to support their package Uh, I I don't know. I don't know how to how to describe it as like, what's the reasons, except um, that, you know, they're able to talk up a big game now. And I just wish that they had been talking up that big game (laughs) uh, before, um, you know, when the bills were actually being uh, fought over.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would echo Tim that in that moment there the the there wasn't a lack of enthusiasm for getting this package Done, and especially because we were in the middle of a pandemic crisis, I think the salience of these sorts of cross-sectoral investments in in healthcare and childcare, in community resources, as well as climate investments was very clear. It was clear to our members as a member-based organization and to many of our allies. And we were contending, right, as Tim said, with the pandemic as organizers. You know, we were testing a different set of strategies and tactics under a new political context where most of what we could do in the early part of that time from 2020 to 2021 was virtual we were trying to mobilize people to make calls we did online lobbying and i think there was a lot of effort there but certainly certainly because of the clampdown and the the quarantines that were all over the country you would you did not see the level of turning out people onto the streets as could have been possible and I will say that that also doesn't mean that we didn't do that, because as the pandemic progressed and things started to open up and people were comfortable with being outside again, there were actions. There were distributed actions calling for climate care, jobs and justice, for uh, addressing the climate crisis at the scale that we needed. Um, we were a part of a coalition called care is essential. And I remember in 2021, in the summer, we brought a lot of our members to Washington, D.C., and we have members who are domestic care workers, home care workers, who were, were part of this coalition with SEIU, the National Domestic Workers Alliance, demanding $400 billion in care investments for care workers as part of this package. And we turned out people. That was one of the biggest early actions coming out of that opening period of the pandemic that I can remember and And we were all masked, you know, outside. And so it was something that we were uh, assessing this is this is risky, but mm-hmm. fighting for it is worth the risk in this moment. and And then, in the end, you know, some of those pieces didn't make it. The care investments actually were one of the pieces that were locked off. Uh, but uh, to, to 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 your point, um tim, this is this was a period in which, We were trying, we were trying to turn out people in the streets. And I think the particular political conditions, um, and the, the level of, uh, getting people, uh, to be together physically was challenging.
0: Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, So uh, let's skip over all the rigmarole with Manchin in 2022 because I never want to think about it again and get to uh, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, (laughs) the Inflation Reduction Act, which is what we've got. It was largely negotiated between um, Manchin and Schumer and people connected to each of them and uh, was presented to the world in August of 2022. Uh, What's in the Inflation Reduction Act? Let's start with Tim.
2: Um, I mean, the main thing that it has is, um, for the first time ever, um, climate investments. <laughs> so, so one shouldn't like <laughs> one shouldn't forget that like the United States is the world's largest oil producer, world's largest gas producer, and you know over the Obama years the fracking boom made it one of the world's largest uh, uh, gas exporters as well. So there's a reason why we've never had a climate bill. Um, you know there's just huge fossil oil and gas interests expressed in, in Manchin, but, you know, the entire GOP as well. So the fact that this bill even exists after Manchin had killed it is, is already something sort of something to register. And, and I I don't want to shift the baselines to like, be happy with whatever you just got. I'm just saying that, you know, it it actually died. It died in December, 2021. You know, it's somehow resurrected after the war, uh, in in Ukraine. Um, and it's resurrected because Manchin basically says, oh, wow, now's the time to get more oil and gas to Europe. And, you know, and he's like, OK, maybe I'll be fine with a few more green um, energy tax credits this time around. So it's, it's kind of a mystery that it comes back. And you could say that the energy security concerns after the war is one of the reasons why Manchin decides to to sort of bring bring it back. But what's in the bill is this whole sort of artillery of, Public money and public money can go out in all sorts of ways. What we would like is a lot of grants, straight up grants by a government agency, so that people can say, "Hey, like this is working, mm-hmm. this is not working." But it also has these sort of diffuse tax credits, which is just a completely like um, uh, uncapped tax credits. What I've been calling sort of bottomless mimosas of green subsidies for all sorts of entities. To do green projects with. So if you're a school, if you're a local hospital, if you're a local government, if you're a state, um, you know, if you're the Tennessee Valley Authority, all of these agencies, local governments, NGOs can go and get those bottomless mimosas if they do green projects. Um,
0: Incidentally, and, yeah. Tim, I heard somebody use your phrase bottomless mimosas uh, at a meeting this morning with a city official here in Lansing. Oh, that's, so uh, that's the word great. is getting around.
2: <laughs> that's great. I mean, and the reason why I call it bottomless mimosas is because, you know, what if it just turns into champagne for the rich? Right. Like, or what if it just turns into carbon sludge? If all sorts of people say, hey, my thing is green, whereas it's actually a false solution full of carbon in it. Right. So we have to be really attentive and monitoring and hold these agencies accountable that are giving these out and because th- they could be giving a, it out just exclusively to big fat private capitalists and that's not what we want so one of the big uh, wins in this is a uh, direct pay which is what I was talking about which is every uh, NGO and local government um, can get it and, and school can get it um and then and then sort of the other thing to also remember about the iras it's not just a climate bill it's a health bill um it's a tax bill it taxes the rich it closes a few loopholes that's how it's paid for um and you know it's a health bill it actually gives medicare uh, negotiating power to negotiate the prices of extremely expensive drugs and you know puts you know ten or fifteen of those drugs under price control. So it's 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 sort of like an um, a Obamacare um sort of mm-hmm. s- as big as Obamacare health bill um, in itself. But you know we're we are here to talk about the 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 climate elements in the bill. And so it's it's the the modeling that you see on how much fossil fuel emissions it's it's actually going to cut is is totally up in the air because it depends upon whether organizers and individuals and state governments can actually drink those bottomless mimosas. It's because um, there's no... It's just a model that says, you know, 10 million people will go get an EB and 20 million people will put solar panels on their roofs. But those numbers could be much, much larger um, if uh, we make sure that they are easy easy to drink and easy to find.
1: This is where... Things get exciting, Will, because I think from the moment we saw what was in the Inflation Reduction Act, you heard all sorts of interpretations about what kind of bill this was, depending on what piece people were looking at. And there are they continue to be up to now competing narratives about how much of a victory this package was. And yes, Tim is absolutely right. This is there are the largest scale of climate investments that we've seen in our lifetimes in this package. And for an organization like mine that represents communities on the front lines of fossil fuel extraction and pollution, there are parts of this bill that we could not accept. You know, that there were Again, strong investments in environmental justice that we fought for and that we won. But there were also investments in technologies that could harm communities like carbon capture, sequestration, hydrogen. There were, because of the negotiation with Manchin, mandated fossil fuel expansion. There were uh, lease sales that were required and and you know this uh we we could go into a whole spiral about this side deal that mansion tried to negotiate to get even more of a locked in fossil fuel development that we had to resist afterwards um but there were all sorts of Uh, poison pills in this package. And so our assessment uh, in the end was the good, the bad and the ugly, right? Like there are, uh, this is a mixed package. And ultimately, organizations like mine, the Climate Justice Alliance, the Movement for Black Lives, Indigenous Environmental Network, we came out in opposition to the bill. When we saw it, we said we cannot support this package that will produce any harm in communities on the front lines of climate crisis and pollution and extraction. And that is not to take away from the pieces that we were able to win right, because of the work of our movements and our folks who made those calls, who turned out, who showed up, and who've been fighting for years for some of these elements. But I can't, you know, on on good faith tell you that this is a fantastic bill today. There are pieces of it that are being implemented that we are continuing to fight right now. And that we, as as Tim said, we don't know if it's going to actually fulfill all of its promises, because some of these things, including like how this bill is going to meet the president's justice 40 commitment to direct some of these investments to frontline communities. We don't know how well they're going to do that, how well agencies are set up to track and implement directed spending on many programs that don't have requirements for directed spending, and whether or not some of these funds might be um, subsumed or co-opted by developers who have no interest or no Um, affinity for actually thinking about environmental justice or climate justice at all. Hi, this is Caden, the publisher of Convergence magazine. There are a lot of places that you can put your hard-earned money in support of our movements, but if you're enjoying this show, I hope you'll consider subscribing to Convergence on Patreon. We're a small independent operation and rely heavily on our readers and listeners like you to support our work. You can join us at patreon.com convergencemag convergence mag. Subscriptions are pay what you can, but at 10 bucks a month, you'll get goodies as well as knowing you're helping to build a better media system, one that supports people's movements and fights fascism. And if you can't afford it right now, don't worry. All our shows will be free for you to enjoy. You can also help by leaving us a positive review or sharing this episode with a comrade. Thank you so much for listening.
0: So Adrian, maybe you could uh, continue that by um, going into some of what the members of your network um, and the communities they represent are, are doing to uh, fight, that, fight for the investments to go into the right place uh, where the investments exist, but also to ensure that some of the um, sort of regulatory guidelines and so forth that you mentioned are being followed to the uh, spirit of what you originally intended in the law.
1: Yeah, so this is happening on multiple fronts right now, right? Um, so we are tracking the programs as they roll out. We have a deep investment in the oversight and the monitoring of the impacts of this spending on all, all sorts of standards from Uh, labor standards, uh, environmental standards, equity standards. So we are trying to work with um, agencies like the Office of Management and Budget and the Government Accountability Office to see how are they, these are the offices responsible for oversight of legislation and investments. How are they going to be monitoring and tracking the outcomes of this spending How are they committed to uh, minimizing harms? How are agencies going to be held accountable? Um, And that's at the federal level. And then at the state level in which many of these programs are going to be implemented, a lot of members of uh, our organization and many others are actually trying to navigate the very complex processes of accessing funding and in, and in many cases, uh, our individual organizations like 501C3's community-based organizations are not the entities that are eligible for grants. They're not going to be applying for large-scale funding for the transit authority, for example. And so how do we navigate those processes to make sure that our members, our uh, community members, are a part of the decision-making by working with their state agencies by working with state legislators who are trying to access these funds and then putting in place the kind of requirements and guidelines to make sure there is uh, tracking of potential harms but also directed investments to the communities that need them the most. And in cases where there is opportunity to access funding, how do we make sure that the communities that are impacted that are actually working with environmental justice communities are, uh, uh, are eligible and able to access those funds? It's a lot of work. It's actually a posture, I think, that many of our organizations are not used to or are well-positioned to, which is navigating federal implementation of investments. And so there is a whole infrastructure, an ecosystem that is mobilizing to try to make sure these investments go to the communities that need them right now.
2: Yeah. So when the Biden people like go on this roadshow, like I was just pulling up a sentence that he said, which kind of blew my mind. He's like, billion in private investments representing over 240 projects in dozens of states. And he says, you know, these investments are creating good paying jobs and jobs that don't require a four year degree and are actually cutting pollution. Right. So we if you're saying that we are supposed to be holding you accountable, are these projects Mm -hmm. actually and, you know, we, we can use that to build economic democracy, power and social power in every Community that these drivers uh, that these dollars are going into, um, and you could think about like you know each of the each of the entities that get the money. If the money is being go- going to an NGO, you know community groups can help with grant applications. If they're going to a company, the, by law that company has to sign a project labor agreement with with workers, and it has to sign a community benefit agreement with the community. Uh, that accepts the money and says hey like you've screwed up this part of the town you need to spend on a park you need to spend on a school you need to give money to to mm-hmm. uh, and do local hiring etc so those are all opportunities and if the dollar is going to a state a lot of these dollars are just going to state governments you know it shouldn't just be the governor's office that just gives it to his friends and and, and companies right like you want a lot of local advocacy putting pressure on on that state government to use that money. Well, not for highways, for transit, et cetera. And if the money is going directly to individuals, as many of these tax credits are, then you yeah. need to get people to that bottomless mimosa and, and show them that this is available and they can drink it. Because as we know, they, you know, it's very hard to like navigate to a government website and find it. And so these are big opportunities for organizers and the IRA shouldn't be seen as a win or a loss zero or one. it it has to be seen as a terrain of struggle full of organizing toeholds.
1: If I could jump back in here, I think that it's important to recognize that this administration, the jury is still out whether or not Biden is a climate president or a fossil fuel president. And this is where uh, I think the narrative battle continues to play. And as Biden goes on this roadshow and the Democrats are going to be trying to wield this piece of legislation as a major victory in addressing the climate, you know, it's not just our job as organizers to try to make sure that the government gets this money to the people who need it the most. It is Biden's job to continue to demonstrate that he takes this crisis seriously, that they recognize that by this. I mean the democratic leadership, that the scale that they have put on the table through this bill is a drop in the bucket for what is Mm -hmm. actually needed. When you started this conversation, well, we were talking about a decade of a Green New Deal, the the trillions of dollars that is actually needed when you do the economic modeling Mm -hmm. for a transition to a renewable energy economy, a just transition. And so we know that this bill is actually just a start And that this administration has been sort of giving with one hand and taking away with the other. As in the last several months, you've seen them um, opening up new oil and gas lease sales in the Gulf Coast, in Alaska, opening up the Willow Project, which um, uh, allows uh, oil and gas exploration in one of the last uh, vast swaths of public lands in Alaska. And all of these actions that the administration is taking to lock in further... Their fossil fuel infrastructure in a moment when we're having the hottest summer of our lives every day as the heat increases. And so uh, we don't know if we can say Biden is a climate champion at this point. We had hope when he got elected, when he was working with us.
0: I would not I would say. That. Not say
1: that. Yes, exactly. So so this is where I think it's very important as we continue to fight this fight to recognize that the Democrats are going to be doing something political with the with how they talk about this bill. But there are folks on the ground who are continuing to fight pipelines, who are continuing to push their local governments and state governments to uh, pass even bolder legislation that, than this, because we know that the window at the federal level is closing or has closed on bigger and bolder climate legislation in this Congress. but. The that there is more to be fought for and and Biden himself has a lot that he can do with his own executive authority to continue to uh, uh, make strong advances on addressing climate crisis and so it's not just up to us as organizers to say give us the money but it's up to Biden and his administration to continue to demonstrate how seriously they're taking this crisis.
0: So Biden do better we got to fight for more get that money. I mean, uh, I'm working on housing, green social housing issues here in Michigan now. And I tell you what, we would love to see that IRA money actually coming down to be able to build efficient housing and have uh, solar and uh, efficiency, heat pumps and so forth built in. I mean, we absolutely need it. So um, I think we need to be able to do all those things at once.
2: Oh, and we absolutely can't let him... Eat. So on fossil fuels, I totally agree with Aidan. This is a crazy expansion of fossil fuels. But also, we can't let him get away with saying, I'm the jobs, jobs, jobs president, and these are all good-paying jobs. These are, A lot of them are shitty jobs. You know, Lee Harris of the American Prospect had this great report on the jobs in the solar industry. And workers are basically being hired through temp contractors, staffing contractors. You can hire them at a moment's notice. They make them drive across the country to the job sites on their own dime. You know, harassment and abuse are kind of rampant. Uh, these are like temporary gig jobs and, and they aren't becoming union electricians. Uh, they're being trained as sort of solar installers, which is like a new jobs description, which is, you know, that that, that, that they're trying to create because they don't want to pay people well. Um, and so, you know, even on the labor side, which is sort of what Biden really is talking up, Um, talking up how these are all good paying jobs. There's a lot that labor unions um, and organizers have to do to hold their feet to the fire. Yeah. So I
0: want to turn then to the international implications of the Inflation Reduction Act and Bidenomics as a whole, including the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill and the CHIPS Act. Um, This economic... uh, package cumulatively is now causing an international stir and contributing to conflict with both China and Europe, which I have to admit, as someone who was uh a Organizer still is an organizer for the Green New Deal is is not something that um, I don't think we anticipated in 2018 and 2019 that then there would take on all these geopolitical implications of the new American green industrial policy, uh, if we can even call it that. So starting with Tim, I wonder if you could um, speak to some of these international ripples that are now unfolding.
2: Yeah, I think it's important to like forget what we want to say. Like think about what how the how the Republicans message this, right? So the Republicans basically want to say Biden is a shit president domestically. Look, unemployment is high, and you know wages are bad, and inflation is high, etc. So that that's one line that they have taken. And the second line they've taken is Biden is blowing up America's position in the world. Like the Chinese can do whatever, the Saudis can do whatever. Like we are going around like destroying America's. A foreign policy and creating enemies um, and upsetting uh, the the rest of the world right so so that's what the re- Republicans are going to message for elections shit precedent domestically shit precedent um, internationally and as far as like like social Democrats and, and and progressives like you know we we thought we were fighting for things like the IRA but what we also have gotten, is um, not just sort of make an America and not just like give more money and run harder ourselves, but also kick the other guy down. So, you know, we are explicitly kicking China and kneecapping China in the chips export control uh, policy, which was just announced, you know, last October. And all that says is China cannot get access to any high-end semiconductors and we're going to tell American companies and, and other firms that use American semiconductor technologies to, like, stop selling it to the Chinese and stop doing business on the Chinese and pull out. Um, and, and you know, it's, we aren't just trying to run harder. We're also trying to, like, smack the other guy behind us mm-hmm. on the knees. And so that's why the Chinese have responded extremely, like, uh, aggressively saying that, you know, this is um, a, a, a system that you want us to be permanently a junior member of. Um, and so, so that's, that's just on the Chinese side. And on the European side, you know, we are caught in this battle where for the Democrats to win those jobs at home and to get investment at home, they've put in all of these make in America and buy American provisions. And that is directly against what the Europeans um, sort of want, which is being able to sort of sell European-made batteries into the American market and get American taxpayer money. Um, And that has sort of been the deal with Europe and East Asia since World War II, which is that America keeps its domestic market open and allows uh, foreign firms to come in and sell their goods. And in return, you know, we provide them security and they join our coalition against the Soviet Union um, before 91 and join our coalition uh, right now against Russia and China and so the Europeans are just basically saying we don't if you don't allow us access into your markets we are not going to be anti-China and we are not going Mm -hmm. to sort of join your coalition there so even though Congress has been extremely protectionist the White House has tried to sort of like placate its allies in Europe and in Asia, because they really want them on board this anti-China coalition. And it's not at all clear to me that progressives, um, you know, have any control (laughs) over the national security state at all. Like, we shouldn't even pretend this is really a foreign policy that is kind of run out of the White House um, and uh, is capable of taking unilateral actions without much uh, approval from Congress or from society.
0: Do you think the goal needs to be to change that calculus and find a way for progressives, uh, grassroots progressives, to have some say over foreign policy? Obviously, that's a kind of outlandish idea (laughs) uh, if you consider where we are now. But what's the solution to this problem you're outlining?
2: Yeah, I mean, broadly, I think we basically have to go back to the vaccine, what happened with the vaccines and the vaccine sort of apartheid that we saw in the world where the rich world, including America and Europeans, kind of hoarded all the vaccines (laughs) and you had a virus raging and no one in developing countries could get their hands on vaccines. So, you know, that is if that's the way in which we want things to go with the energy transition and with green, that is extremely troubling. We are leaving behind not only our front lines where we are expanding fossil fuels in Texas, Louisiana and the Gulf Coast, but we are also leaving behind the rest of the world. And that, um, you know, and and for vaccines, what did progressives want? They said, hey, stop putting like IP rights on a vaccine. This is a matter of life and death. Just get it into people's hands who want it. Um, And so we could be pushing for, hey, we're giving you all of this public money to a company that is coming up with whatever green technologies, batteries and solar panels and whatever. Like you've gotten public help. Now go and give it and do sort of co-production and co-installation in other countries. Because if you don't do that, this looks like straight up colonialism, right? Like the straight up colonialism is you just like take the raw materials out of the colonies, you process it at home and you sell the colonies, the finished goods, right? You take the cotton out of India and you sell them the t-shirts from Lancashire. Is that what we wanted the the, sort of the energy, the global energy transition to be? Um, And so, the progressives can push for an alternative vision, which is we are creating a global value chain where we may be coming up with some technology, we may need some of your uh, raw resources, but we're gonna combine them together so that each of us can, can win. Um, so if we are going to be, you know, for instance, when a Germanese, Chancellor Scholz went to Brazil, he didn't just say, hey, I'm going to take, sorry, he went to uh, Chile. He didn't say, I'm just going to take all of your lithium. He said, I'm going to have Volkswagen build a battery factory in Chile so that you can take the lithium out of Chile, process it, and you guys get to know the know-how and the factory that processes it as well. Uh, and that's something that, you know, th- there's a lot of international pots of money that that are now being created that progressives need to keep their eyes on and push for something like that.
1: I appreciate Tim's explication of the protectionist implications of of Biden's posture on the IRA and climate policy. And I will add, as an organization that works in the international climate negotiation space and brings frontline communities and tracks some of the Elements of policy that uh, the U.S. and other countries are trying to position in those negotiations that the U.S. is using this bill as a platform to showcase what it's calling its own leadership. In the international scene, right? And Joe Biden and John Kerry are coming into that. We just had the Conference of the Parties or the COP of the UNFCCC in Egypt last fall. Um, they were there and then they're going to come to the United Arab Emirates again in this uh, next COP to talk about what they're doing to, to advance the climate goals of the United States. And I think what it's important to know is what pieces they are showcasing and one of the things that we are carefully tracking and very concerned about is how the United States is actually peddling some of the worst false climate solutions that we're, um, that can threaten communities. And when I say false solutions for, for listeners, that means things that we hear about like carbon offsets, carbon capture that sound good but actually have deep equity implications and can potentially harm communities and particularly because of their potential to prolong the life of fossil fuel industry and and fossil fuel extraction. And so you have um, Secretary Granholm of the Department of Energy And John Kerry coming to these international meetings, talking about how the U.S. federal government is investing in carbon capture and storage infrastructure. It's putting the dollars on the table. It's putting the tax incentives, and it's even creating administrative policy through the recent EPA rule that it's offering on on, um, power plants to try to incentivize the use of this technology that basically scrubs carbon and then tries to store it somewhere deep in the earth or in the ocean. And there's so many implications of that technology. In fact, there's a lot of study that shows it doesn't work um, and that uh, a lot of the places that have tried have failed to meet the minimum targets for reducing carbon through CCS. Um, But you have folks from the US coming into these spaces offering that they are going to be piloting the next wave of, of, of technology that is going to get us to uh, the global emissions reduction targets that we need and And so when I talk to allies from other countries from the global South, they are very shocked to hear how advanced the CCS infrastructure and development, discourse is here in the United States because they know that this stuff is going to hurt them and that it's coming to their communities and and then I have to tell them yes the US is on a roadshow for this technology and it is because they got it passed in this legislation and you have John Kerry going out there talking about um, projects like the Energy Transition Accelerator that they've introduced which is basically a finance mechanism that trades carbon for investments in the Global South, in in, uh, communities that are more vulnerable, more impacted. And we know that carbon offsets don't work. So here you have this multi-million dollar proposal on the table, rehashing uh, solutions, schemes that we know are not going to work. And and this is what the federal government is trying to position its climate leadership on. It's yeah. something that's very concerning.
0: Kerry's ability to sell this stuff with a straight face, I have found to be particularly uh, just enraging. And the offsets markets in particular are just, I mean, inexcusable uh, amidst a lot of other inexcusable things. Um, We're running up on time here. So I want to move us towards concluding. Uh, Let's try this as a as a final question for each of you. Briefly, if you were to each share, what's one big lesson that you take away from this whole trajectory from the Green New Deal to build back better to the IRA? And what's one big unanswered question that you have about what comes next?
1: This is a good question.
2: I have yeah, to think. I do. I do have to think, but I'm. I'm just sort of gonna go uh, with my gut. I. I. I think, the one big lesson is we, those social democrats and us communities, are the people who've come up with ideas that actually match our, our communities' needs, and, the Biden administration has got like two, sort of big powerful groups of people that have sort of tried to put that clamp. One are are these kind of fossil capitalists and fossil um, um, fuel companies. And the second one are these deficit hawks that are in Congress that include Biden himself um, that Mm -hmm. are afraid of doing public spending. So their sort of slogan is always crowd in private capital. Do most, they unleash these bottomless mimosas and let companies sort of do most of the heavy lifting instead of letting the public... Um, do um, the public sector and the government itself take on that responsibility? And, you know, and that's the reason why I think we have so much more left to fight for, because I think our vision is actually the one that is not just not just like a just transition, but an actually effective transition. It's not clear to me that this transition is actually going to be able to meet Biden's own stated goals of cutting emissions in half by in, in 10 years. Um, so we should we should be when we're talking about the just transition, we are really talking about is it even going to be an effective transition? You know, he's left public transit completely unsupported, right? All of the money's uh, been given for EVs, and and um, car emissions uh, are you know half of U.S. emissions. They're much larger than the power sector, so it's not clear to me that this is going to be an effective transition without. You know, fleets of clean electric buses and high speed rail and public transit, all the stuff that was left on the cutting room floor. Um, So that's that's my sort of big sense that, no, actually, I think we are right. We have to keep pushing and fighting and win. And the second lesson is you just need a larger majority in Congress. Um, If you need 218 votes in the House and you and you cannot rest (laughs) upon mansion and cinema, you need a bigger majority in the Senate. Um, because otherwise uh, a lot of these big um, uh, builds just just don't go um, anywhere.
0: Thanks, Tim. Adrian.
1: Yeah, I think that one of the biggest lessons for me is that we are able to win. And despite how critical I am of what we landed with, and I will hold to what I've said about how um, there's, really terrible stuff in this package there are things that we fought for and won and that they're only there because we fought and you can trace that where we are in 2023 with the inflation reduction act is a direct result of this three-year arc four-year arc you know of organizing around pandemic recovery around the thrive act and and positioning demands for Biden to be a climate president. And because of the clarity, I think, of our movement's alignment in that time uh, across movement sectors, actually, and, and the political opportunity that we had given the conditions with a trifecta uh, of democratic control, we were able to get something. It was not what we wanted, of course, um, uh, at the scale that we wanted, um, but we won something. And I think that the lesson from that is to, to not underestimate our power to win when we have a level of alignment and a strategic clarity about the political opening with which we can we can get uh, a, a victory uh, that will take us a step forward. And so, for from from a movements' perspective, from a coalition's perspective. I think like we're in an actually challenging place now with the IRA um, being implemented, this government saying that, you know, they're basically wiping their hands and said, we're, we've addressed the climate crisis, nothing else to do here. Um, and so we are trying to reorient ourselves. I think a lot of our organizations and coalitions are, are looking at what's next. And I think that's the big question is, are we able to come back Um, from this fight and and lick our wounds and also, you know, pick up the crumbs of what we won and say, okay, let's get organized and map the road ahead for the next three-year arc, the next five-year arc of the things that we need to still uh, win uh, at the scale that we need. Because even though the political forecast is difficult and challenging, and not looking good, um, I, I bet you that we will have another opportunity to pass something and to organize uh, bigger coalitions and to build power at the scale that we need to win these things. And I think those the, the lessons that we have from the last three years, if we, if we do our assessment and take them seriously, are going to set the roadmap for how we win the next big thing.
0: Adrian and Tim, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for all of your tremendous work.
1: Thank you. Well, thank you for this opportunity.
0: Thanks again to Tim Sahey and Adrian Salazar for that conversation. Um, in listening back to our chat, a few major themes and lessons stood out for me, lessons we ought to be reflecting on for the future. Tim did an excellent job of bringing matters back to 50 senators and 218 House votes. The majority needed to get anything done in Congress. And anyone who's lived through the experience of trying to pass a bill in Congress has these numbers seared into your minds. And you can actually really identify the interests at stake by paying attention to these numbers and how they played out through the process the difference between 48 and 50 senators was the difference between a $4.5 trillion Build Back Better package and a $400 billion Inflation Reduction Act. And in those two votes, you can see the interests of private equity finance and fossil fuel extraction directly having their say through Cinema and Manchin, respectively. At every stage, Even at the state level and the federal level, as long as we're dealing with legislatures, we need to learn how to count in this way. And as always, be making judgments about what concessions are worth it to keep that number going up towards the majority. Adrian did a really good job of drawing out some of the new challenges facing social movements who helped to win uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, even in its limited form. Grassroots organizations are now working with agencies like the Office of Management and Budget and the Government Accountability Office to do their best to ensure that programs are well administered and in the interest of the frontline communities and other working class communities that these groups serve. And on the one hand, this is encouraging because it offers at least the prospect or the opportunity we're seeing of so-called co-governance between sympathetic allies on the inside and organized groups on the outside. But it also raises questions about whether our organizations are currently designed or really well-suited for this work, the risk of incorporation or bureaucratic capture of our movements, and the always-present risk of having such work wiped out by a change of administration. And I know these are tensions that these groups are grappling with, even as they step into this space to try to take advantage of this opportunity. We didn't get so much in this episode into the unfolding tensions within the climate coalition that are happening now. As green business gets a huge boost from the IRA, some in that sector are openly wondering if they still need to be in alliance with the left-wing climate justice-oriented groups who helped to till the soil for these victories in the first place. So you're seeing a potential split between green capital and the other climate hawks and climate justice advocates. Meanwhile, the Green New Deal vision is facing challenges from some on the left, including some who argue that its vision of a big green social democratic state still doesn't go far enough to address the climate crisis or the underlying crises of capitalist extraction and worker exploitation. Folks also disagree or aren't yet sure what to do about the fact that U.S. climate policy has now become articulated and a part of the increasingly dangerous geopolitical rivalry with China. And that's something I think the climate movement as a whole is only just beginning to grapple with. But all of this will have to be stuff that we take up in another episode. This has been the Hegemonicon, and I'm William Lawrence. Let's talk again soon. This podcast is written and hosted by me, William Lawrence. Our producer is Josh Elstro, and it is published by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. You can help support this show and others like it by becoming a Patreon subscriber of Convergence for as low as $2 per month at patreon.com convergencemag convergence mag. You can find a direct link in the show notes. This has been the Hegemonicon. Let's talk again soon.